This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Wild Things. This week, I'll tell you about a case that rocked the San Francisco Bay Area in early 2001. Dogs are called man's best friend. And if you're like me, your dogs may be just like family members. But pets are also a responsibility to be taken seriously. You have to give them love and attention, proper food and nutrition, and exercise as well as training and discipline. Most people I know are responsible pet owners, but there are always a few who create problems for others, mainly by not properly training their pets. This case is an extreme example of that. Two very large and beautiful dogs were either not properly trained and socialized or deliberately trained to be aggressive or both. This point would be debated in the public and the media after this case. Either way, the result was a tragedy where a young female college coach would lose her life in a shocking way due to the actions of two irresponsible pet owners. The backstory to this tragic case is so bizarre that it almost seems made up. But it's all true, and you'll hear all the details in the next two episodes. Yep, this is a two-parter. But if you can't wait until the next week to get the ending to the story, it will be available early on Patreon. I'll share the details on how you can access it at the end of this episode. This is Chapter 2, The Pacific Heights Dog Mauling Case. The Pacific Heights neighborhood of San Francisco is made up of only 0.9 square miles, or 2.5 kilometers, and is home to approximately 22,000 of San Francisco's 890,000 residents. It's one of the most exclusive and expensive areas in the city, and in fact, is one of the most expensive neighborhoods in the United States. It sits in the northwest corner of the city, at 100 meters above sea level, providing residents with panoramic views of a Golden Gate Bridge and the San Francisco Bay. Mansions built in the Victorian, Edwardian, and Chateau styles dot the neighborhood. Notable residents include billionaire real estate developer Jay Paul, United States House Representative Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, and author Danielle Steele. The home shown in exterior shots of the movie Mrs. Doubtfire is located in Pacific Heights. Not all residences in Pacific Heights are mansions. There are many architecturally beautiful apartment buildings that are somewhat more affordable than the record-breaking 11,000-square-foot, $40 million mansion that was listed for sale recently. Still, apartments are pricey, with one-bedroom, one-bath units in sought-after addresses currently renting for no less than $5,000 per month. So a neighborhood like Pacific Heights can be described with adjectives such as genteel, well-heeled, and upscale. So when the residents of Pacific Heights began having issues with irresponsible dog owners who couldn't or wouldn't control their animals, they weren't sure how to respond. One resident who'd had scary encounters with her neighbor's dogs was 33-year-old Diane Whipple. Diane was a lacrosse coach at St. Mary's College in nearby Moraga. She and her partner, Sharon Smith, had moved into their sixth-floor apartment located at 2398 Pacific Avenue in May of 1999. Sharon and Diane had been together for seven years. Diane, originally from Long Island, New York, was always an athletic girl. At five foot five, she was graceful and skilled on the lacrosse field. She played for her college team, Penn State, and was even chosen NCAA's Female Athlete of the Year. Diane played for both the United States and World Cup lacrosse teams. She trained to qualify for the 1996 U.S. Olympic team and did well, but just missed qualifying. She met Sharon Smith through an introduction by a mutual friend, and they hit it off right away. Before long, they were conducting a long-distance romance. Diane in San Diego and Sharon in San Francisco, where she was in the Charles Schwab training program. Just a few months after meeting, Diane relocated to San Francisco to be with Sharon. 
Diane had to put aside her goals of being a professional lacrosse player when she was diagnosed with thyroid cancer in her 20s. However, she found a job coaching lacrosse at the private college St. Mary's of California. She loved the sport and her students. Her energy and enthusiasm made her a popular coach at St. Mary's. Beginning in the fall of 2000, Diane and Sharon began seeing a couple walking two large dogs through the building. They encountered them at times when they were retrieving their mail or heading down to the garage. Before long, they realized that the couple with the dogs were neighbors who lived just down the hall. Their dogs were not normal-sized dogs. They were both easily over 100 pounds each. The larger of the two was a brindle-colored, non-neutered male with tan tiger stripes. The other was slightly smaller and female with the same coloring. The man who was seen walking the dogs was tall and heavyset with bushy gray hair and a mustache. His name was Robert Noel. The woman, Marjorie Noller, was about a foot shorter than her husband, of medium build, and seemed at least a decade younger than him. He looked to be in his late 50s and she in her 40s. The dogs wore harnesses, and Diane and Sharon would see one or both of the owners walking the dogs together. They didn't appear to have complete control over the large dogs. Even Noel, a large man, seemed to have to pull with a lot of strength to get the dogs to move in the right direction. The women were even more startled when they'd see Noller trying to handle the dogs by herself. Together, those dogs, as they took to calling them, must have had at least 100 pounds on the petite woman. The couple wasn't friendly, and Diane and Sharon didn't know their names. As a matter of fact, the first time Sharon had encountered Noel with the dogs in front of their building in September of 2000, she had tried to pet the dogs, and he had snapped at her. Don't do that. She drew back, startled, and he explained that she shouldn't touch the dog. He'd been in a fight with another dog in the park recently, he said, and was still, quote, a little spooked, unquote. The foyer and the hallways of the building were narrow, and they had to access their sixth-floor apartment by elevator. It was the old-fashioned kind that locked into each floor. Once the elevator locked, a heavy metal door had to be opened by hand to enter. The couple would bring the dogs on leashes into the small elevator to exit or enter their floor. The two large dogs, along with their owners, filled the entire elevator. Diane would encounter the dogs in all of these closed spaces, and they became increasingly aggressive towards her. They would bark and snarl and pull on their leashes when they saw her, and she began to be afraid of them. Diane was a dog lover, and she knew this wasn't normal behavior for most pets. Certainly no other dogs in the building behaved this way. It was also worrisome because, as she'd observed, the owners didn't appear to be able to handle them. The dogs clearly weren't under voice command. She rarely even heard the owners issue a command to the dogs. They simply allowed them to snarl and lunge and just yanked harder on their leashes as they walked by. They never acknowledged Diane or apologized for the behavior. Then in early December 2000, Sharon received a frantic call at work from Diane. That dog just bit me, Diane cried. How badly was she injured, Sharon wanted to know. Diane assured her that she was fine, but she was angry at the owner and frightened to encounter the dog again. She had been walking through the foyer when the man passed with the dog who lunged at her and bit her on the wrist. When she got home, Sharon inspected the bite. The dog had clamped onto her wrist, and Diane had been wearing a sports watch that took most of the brunt. She had a couple of deep red indentations in her wrist, but the skin had not been broken, and she wasn't bleeding. After that, Diane was on guard whenever she entered or exited the building. Sharon said that Diane was terrified of the dogs now. Afraid of running into them again, Diane would walk behind Sharon in case they might be around and try to get to her. When Sharon opened the elevator door too quickly, Diane would say, don't do that, afraid that the dog might be inside. Those dogs became a frequent topic of conversation with Whipple and Smith and sense that two such large aggressive dogs should be living in an apartment building. How the dogs came to inhabit apartment number 604 at 2398 Pacific Avenue was a story in of itself.
The origin of the two large dogs, named Bane and Hera, begins with a man named Paul Cornfed Schneider, Cornfed being his nickname. Paul Schneider was born in 1962 in Cerritos, California, a small suburban town located in Los Angeles County. He grew up with his mother, stepfather, and two younger sisters. Paul would say that he had a happy childhood and that his stepfather, a retired Air Force officer, would take him flying in Cessnas, small piston-powered aircraft popular with recreational pilots. However, Paul's younger sister Tammy would tell Rolling Stone that life in their home was hell. Her stepfather was abusive, bordering on sadistic, she says. He would sometimes wake them in the middle of the night to scour the bathroom floors with toothbrushes, a la Mommy Dearest, and he beat them. Tammy says her first beating occurred when she was only eight years old. When she was still in her preteens, her stepfather began sexually abusing her. Paul would come to his little sister's defense. He stood up to our stepdad, Tammy says. That man used to beat the shit out of Paul. In 1979, after graduating from high school, Paul joined the Air Force. He did not do well under another person's authority and always needed to break the rules and buck the system. He was discharged from the service for writing bad checks. He returned home to Cerritos to manage a pizza parlor. One night, he arrived at the restaurant, hidden behind a mask, and robbed the place. But Paul had bigger plans. His sister Tammy at that time was working as a cashier at a local grocery store. He would see the armored cars arriving at the store with bags of cash. He also decided that the armored security guards were arrogant and full of themselves. He wanted to show them they weren't so tough. He robbed the guards, getting away with almost $100,000 in cash. When he arrived at his parents' home riding a brand-new tricked-out motorcycle, his stepfather called the cops and told them that he suspected his stepson of the armed car robbery. They began building a case against him, and in 1985, at the age of 23, he was convicted of the robbery and sent to New Folsom Prison. In prison... Schneider continued to fight authority and hated the guards, defying them at every turn. He soon connected with the Aryan Brotherhood, the white supremacist prison gang, and was allowed to join their ranks after he stabbed a guard in the neck. While in court to testify at another inmate's hearing, Schneider attacked the defense attorney, stabbing him multiple times with a weapon made out of a soup ladle that he'd managed to smuggle into court. When questioned as to why he had done so, Schneider said he wanted to show up the new prison warden, who had boasted about airtight security measures. He thought that the warden was too arrogant and needed to be taught a lesson. He picked the defense attorney to violently attack because he, quote, didn't like his attitude, smart-aleck remarks, or demeanor, unquote. Schneider was transferred to the newly opened Pelican Bay State Prison, a facility that was built to house the worst of the worst inmates in the California correctional system. Paul Schneider qualified. Pelican Bay Prison is located at the extreme northwest corner of California, just a few miles south of the Oregon border. It is the only supermax state prison in California. Almost half of the inmates housed there are serving life sentences, and nearly all have prior histories of violence at other state prisons. In 1997, Schneider got into a violent altercation with a rival gang member in the shower unit of the prison. The two inmates were brought down by a non-lethal gas gun, which fires plastic projectiles. Several shots hit Schneider in the head, for which he sued the prison. The case was thrown out of court. After being released from the infirmary, Schneider was sent to the secure housing units, or the SHU. Here, the most violent prisoners are locked in solitary confinement, 22 hours a day, 7 days a week. Schneider would consider it a point of pride, saying he'd been sent there to be isolated away from the rapists and child molesters. Even the most violent and murderous inmates consider these offenders beneath them. Special Agent Devin Hawks was working for the U.S. Department of Justice on site at Pelican Bay in a special gang unit alongside gang expert Jeff Brittle. They suspected that Paul Schneider was an A.B. shot caller, playing a leadership role in the gang, and may have ordered hits on enemies inside and outside of prison. Schneider was clever, however, 
and used codes and cryptic language in his communications to confound authorities. They all but knew that Schneider was having people murdered, but could not put together an unassailable case against him. However, by this time, Schneider was serving a life sentence after his attacks on guards and the attempted murder of the attorney, and was incarcerated at one of the most secure units in the country. There wasn't much left in the way of punishment for Schneider, minus the death penalty. Schneider's cellmate at Pelican Bay was Dale Bretches. Bretches had been convicted of murder in 1979 after beating a man to death in a San Diego bar. He was serving a life sentence. He was also a member of the Aryan Brotherhood. Locked in their cell away from the general population, Schneider and Bretches began creating artwork. Schneider preferred fantastical drawings of medieval figures and mythical creatures. He was also a fan of Tolkien's tales and Norse mythology. He studied ancient rune symbols, which Special Agent Hawks believed he used to transmit coded messages to gang associates. Schneider enjoyed drawing animals most of all, and asked his sister to send him magazines with animal pictures so that he could use them as models for his artwork. It was when he came across a copy of Dog Fancy magazine that he and Bretches got the idea to start a dog breeding service. Ads in the back pages of the magazine listed dogs for sale, and one breed particularly caught Schneider's eye. The Presa Canario is a breed that originated in Spain's Canary Islands and was used by Spanish cattlemen to kill wild dogs that attacked their cattle. Later, the Presas themselves sometimes had to be destroyed when they began attacking and injuring the cattle themselves. Later, the dogs were used for the sport of dogfighting. This was banned in Spain in the 1940s, but continued to be a common practice through the 1950s. Only farmers and hunters were legally allowed to own the powerful breed due to the damage they could do with their powerful jaws. The average-sized male pressa is between 100 and 160 pounds, or 45 to 73 kilograms. Females average 85 to 150 pounds, or 39 to 70 kilograms. The breed became rare, but was kept from disappearing by a few breeders who sold them to be used as guard dogs. They became popular with drug dealers and gang members who wanted the prestige of owning the rare and powerful breed. In the 1990s, puppies sold for, on average, $2,000 apiece, or over $3,100 today. Bretches and Schneider began researching how they could get their hands on a couple of dogs to begin breeding to sell the puppies. They knew just the type of people who might be interested in owning one of their dogs. But they needed someone on the outside that they could trust to purchase, raise, and breed the dogs for them. Schneider put the next part of his plan into place. He was a master manipulator, and he knew his best bet was to charm an unsuspecting woman to do his bidding. It was something he'd done before, and he was good at it. He never rushed his prospect, but took his time until he had her eating out of the palm of his hand and willing to follow his orders. Dale Bretches' girlfriend knew a lady named Janet Coombs who lived in the rural town of Hayfork, located about 200 miles south of Pelican Bay. Janet was divorced with a 17-year-old daughter. She lived on and operated a four-acre sheep ranch. Bretches' girlfriend, Janet Capes, had met Coombs at church. When her boyfriend asked her if there was anyone who might be interested in writing to his cellmate, Capes thought of Janet Coombs and persuaded her to write to Schneider as her, quote, Christian duty towards a lonely inmate. Little by little, Schneider worked on Janet, first telling her his version of his life story. He admitted his history of robbing stores and the armored car, but told her he never targeted individuals. He also never mentioned his history of violence. He drew her pictures and sent them in the mail. She began to think of him as a sensitive artist who had just made some bad choices early in life, and her heart went out to him. It also didn't hurt when she found out that her pen pal was a 35-year-old, 6-foot, 2-inch, 227-pound man, muscularly built with blonde hair and gray eyes. Janet was lonely, and besides her husband, who had left her when she'd gained weight a few years into their marriage, she hadn't dated much. Janet sent him pictures of the farm, and he said he loved animals. He drew more pictures to send to her and also to her daughter, Daisy. 
Janet felt she was doing a good thing, writing to Schneider about God and giving him someone to pour his heart and soul out to. Of course, Schneider knew exactly how to get a woman like Janet interested in helping him whatever way she could. He pegged her as a do-gooder and knew that if she thought she was helping him explore his better self, she'd be an easy mark. He was right. He began talking about his love of animals, especially dogs, and told her when the time came, he wanted to live in a rural area, maybe a farm, not unlike Janet's, and raise beautiful dogs to share with loving families. Not only would he be connected to nature, but he could also earn an honest income, he explained. He began sharing information about the kinds of dogs he wanted to breed. He'd already begun speaking in we terms to Janet, and this gave her hope that he felt about her the way she was beginning to feel about him. He then laid out his plan. He would provide the money, and all she'd have to do was take possession of the puppies, bring them to the farm, and when they got big enough to breed, he'd have others help her to find buyers and make the sale. She had all that land, perfect for dogs, he explained. Once they sold the puppies, they could split the profits. He shared pictures with her of the Presa Canario breed that he loved so much. Janet at first was not convinced. Such big dogs, she said. She raised sheep and was afraid the dogs might hurt them. Then there was the fact that she'd never owned dogs and didn't know the first thing about the breed or how to care for them. Schneider continued to convince her that it would be good for her, for the farm, and even for her daughter Daisy. They'd have protection, and the dogs would also protect the sheep. It was all perfect. Finally, Janet agreed. She wanted to please Schneider, and she could use the extra income. Schneider gave her the names of Pressa breeders to contact. They found a male and female puppy to purchase from one of the breeders. The male was named Bane, and the female, Isis. She first saw the dogs when she took possession of them in June 1998. She and Daisy drove eight hours to pick them up from the breeder. Other than that, she'd only seen pictures of presses on a website. They were much bigger and scarier looking in person, she thought. Bane was a 30-pound puppy when he arrived. After the dogs came to Hayfork, Schneider soon began making demands on Janet. He told her he'd pay for all the food and supplies, but he wanted her to only feed them special food that he said would ensure they grew to their maximum size. He also required that she give them daily dietary supplements and provide other specialized equipment for them. The problem was, Schneider didn't give her enough funds to meet all his requirements, and she began paying for the dog's needs out of her own pocket. Things began to add up quickly. She also didn't appreciate Schneider's bossy attitude. The dogs became more difficult to handle. They grew quickly, Bane soon reaching almost 100 pounds. She didn't have any training on how to handle the dogs, especially such a large and powerful breed. They began destroying things in the house, and Janet took to fencing them in outside. But they soon began chewing through the fencing as if it were cardboard. They ate enormous amounts of food, and Schneider insisted that she feed them a half pound of ground chicken or ground beef daily. He also insisted on photos of the dogs at regular intervals. When she sent pictures of them, he complained that they were too blurry and that she'd taken them from an angle that made them look too small. There was no pleasing him when it came to the dogs. Schneider and Breches had started a website for their dog breeding operation. They named it Dog O'War Kennel. One of the pictures of Bane that Janet had sent was now posted on it, and underneath, the caption read like a dictionary entry. Bane, 1. One who causes death or destroys life. 2. Death, destruction, ruin. 3. One who ruins or spoils. Bane was going to be their prized stud. Even while Janet was telling Schneider that she couldn't handle or afford the dogs, he was making plans to purchase two more females for Bane to breed with. Isis was already pregnant with her first litter of puppies by that time. So before long, Janet and Daisy were making another trip to pick up two more female puppies, Hera and Fury. Fury was incorrigible from the start. When Janet picked her up in the airport, she was housed in a portable dog crate. The baggage handler told Janet to be careful. You've got Cujo in there, he said. It's going berserk. 
was soon clear that Fury and Hera had not been socialized at all. Janet was afraid of Fury. She barked and lunged at anything and anyone that came near her. Hera was more docile. It didn't help that Bane and Isis both hated the new pups. Bane was also a bully to Isis, pulling her out of her kennel and knocking her around before urinating on her. This is not normal behavior for a dog, and Janet reported it to Schneider, concerned for the safety of the other dogs. Schneider, in response, thought it was funny. He enjoyed hearing that the dog was aggressive. Bane and Isis became impossible to contain within any fences. Janet would reinforce their pens, and they would just chew through them and break out, roaming around the farm at will. Soon, Fury and Hera joined them. Isis gave birth to ten puppies, but to their horror, she turned on them, killing six. They were able to save one that she'd buried alive, and three more that she hadn't gotten to. Schneider was furious and believed Janet was lying to him about the dead pups. He accused her of going behind his back and selling the others and pocketing the profits. Janet couldn't believe what he was saying to her. Then she began to find dead animals on the farm. First, it was a few of her chickens. Then she found a dead sheep. Finally, Daisy's cat was found dead. Then in October 1999, Janet began receiving calls from a pair of San Francisco lawyers named Robert Noel and Marjorie Noller. They were representing Paul Schneider, who had filed a lawsuit against her to take possession of the dogs. Not only was she to hand them over, they also wanted her to transport them to San Francisco. She refused. Finally, tired of being badgered by the attorneys, she agreed to relinquish the dogs, but told the attorneys that they'd have to pick them up. She urged them to bring a professional dog handler, explaining how big, aggressive to strangers, and hard to handle they were. By that time, about a dozen of Janet's sheep and even more chickens had been killed by the dogs. But rather than being concerned, Janet said Marjorie Noller was condescending and rude and dismissed her warnings out of hand. You can expect us early, Noller said in a clipped tone. We're early risers and we'll probably arrive there at 6 a.m. Well, Janet warned, Bane and Hera hate each other, and the pups don't like Hera either. So if any of them get out of their crates while you're hauling them, God help you. Robert Noel and Marjorie Noller arrived to pick up the dogs in Hayfork on April 1st, 2000. They had come by the previous day to take a look at the animals, and at that time, realized the crates they'd brought were too small for the enormous dogs. They planned to return the next morning, April Fool's Day, with bigger crates as well as a professional dog handler. Janet thought that the two lawyers looked nothing like what she'd expected. Instead of two big city lawyers in $1,000 suits, she thought Robert Noel looked like an aging preppy with his jeans and sweatshirt and boat shoes. Marjorie Noller, his wife, was trying hard to fit in, she thought, in her jeans and cowboy boots, her hair in pigtails. Noller seemed to feel a little bit bad for Janet. Her daughter Daisy cried at seeing the dogs go, especially Bane, who'd been her first dog, and also the puppies. Noller offered to let them keep one of the puppies, but Janet declined. She just wanted to wash her hands of Paul Schneider and the whole big hassle she'd endured for almost two years. She'd also become afraid of Paul Schneider as he'd sent several threatening letters during the months leading up to the lawyer's involvement. As far as she was concerned, this was a chapter she'd rather put behind her. Schneider and Breches had found new owners for some of the dogs. Bane, Isis, and the four puppies were sent to La Puente, located in Southern California. Hera and Fury were boarded at the Peninsula Pet Resort in San Carlos, California, just south of San Francisco. They were being pampered and prepped to be sold to new owners. Just a couple of weeks before they picked up the dogs from Janet Coombs, a vet had been sent to inspect the dogs and issue rabies and health certificates for them. He also provided tranquilizers to administer to the dogs before they were transported. The veterinarian felt compelled to send the following letter to Marjorie Noller. She received it the day before they left for Hayfork. Dear Mrs. Noller, it read, Physically, I found the dogs in great shape, with the exception of Roca, one of the puppies, who had an infection in the left eye. It did not appear too bad and was probably due to an injury. However, I would be professionally amiss if I did not mention the following, so that you can be prepared. 
These dogs are huge, probably weighing in the neighborhood of 100 pounds each. They have had no training or discipline of any sort. They were a problem to even get to, let alone vaccinate. You mentioned having a professional hauler gather them up and take them to La Puente. Usually, this would be done in crates, but I doubt you could get them into anything short of a livestock trailer, and if let loose, they would have a battle. To add to this, these animals would be a liability in any household. The historic romance of the warrior dog, the personal guard dog, the gaming dog, etc., may sound good, but it hardly fits into life today. In any event, you'll do as you wish, but at least I have given you my opinion. Yours very truly, Donald B. Martin, GVM. A month later, after Hera was discovered to have a heart murmur, Robert Noel and Marjorie Noller decided to bring Hera home to live with them at 2398 Pacific Avenue. In the meantime, the gang unit agents had been monitoring Schneider's dog breeding ring and his relationship with the attorneys Noller and Noel. Agent Hawks had proof that Dog o War Kennels was selling the dogs to affiliates of the Mexican Mafia, and they suspected that the entire operation was to provide guard dogs to drug dealers and gang leaders to protect methamphetamine labs, safe houses, and the like. While the dog breeding operation was a violation of California Department of Corrections rules, it was not illegal for Schneider to use others outside the prison to carry out his orders to run the scheme. And because Schneider and Breches were already serving the harshest punishment possible, housed in the shoe at Pelican Bay, there was not much else the CDC could do to them. The investigation then turned to take a look at who these two attorneys, Noel and Noller, were. Why were they so involved in the dog breeding scheme? They were frequent visitors to Schneider, and he received voluminous amounts of correspondence from the couple, all marked confidential legal mail. They needed to find out more about Noel and Noller and their connection to Schneider. Robert Noel and Marjorie Noller had married in 1989. Noel was 15 years her senior and already an experienced and respected attorney when they met. He'd graduated from the University of Maryland on a Marine Corps scholarship before attending law school. In 1969, he was hired by the Justice Department, working as a tax attorney in Washington, D.C. He'd married his first wife, Karen, in 1963. They had three children together. In 1980, Noel moved to California to take a job as an assistant U.S. attorney in San Diego. He said he became disillusioned with the amount of power the government possessed and how it, quote, rolled over the common man. He quit his federal job and moved to San Francisco to work for a corporate firm. At about the same time, his 23-year marriage ended. His wife, Karen, describes her ex-husband as mentally ill. His son, Robert Jr., was quoted in Rolling Stone, saying that his father was, quote, a jackass. In San Francisco, Noel was briefly married a second time before he met Marjorie Noller, his third wife. Marjorie was a recent law school graduate employed by the same firm as Noel. She was 32 years old. They found that they had a lot in common, and it wasn't long before they moved in together. Marjorie grew up in Brooklyn and had aspired to be an FBI agent in her youth. She was a straight arrow who didn't relate to her college classmates, who spent their weekends partying and socializing. She had the freedom, having been born into a well-to-do family, to indulge her idealism. She considered herself an activist and aspired to do pro bono work primarily. In 1988, Noel and Noller quit their law firm and started their own practice. Buoyed by Marjorie's trust fund, they focused on pro bono cases. While Noel had once been a respected attorney who hobnobbed with first government officials and later San Francisco's social set, he and his wife began thumbing their noses at the establishment and, frankly, became a drag at parties. While attending a soiree at Ann and Gordon Getty's mansion, Noel began to grumble. Why doesn't Ann just turn her mansion into a home for the homeless? He was heard to say, you know, since she cares so much about them, donating her big fat house could probably solve the whole problem. Noller's idealism had certainly had an effect on her husband. 
1994, they took a case representing John Cox, a Pelican Bay prison guard. A class action suit had been filed by inmates at Pelican Bay, claiming that guards used excessive force against them. John Cox had testified in the landmark case and then claimed to have been retaliated against by prison officials for doing so. The suit was thrown out after the court heard evidence that Cox had been disciplined for legitimate reasons, including several sexual harassment allegations. Soon after the judgment, Cox was arrested for sexual assault and jailed. Within days, he was found hanged in his cell. Noller and Noel had become fierce opponents of the CDC, or California Department of Corrections. They began representing prison guards and inmates in grievances against the CDC. Legal experts would review Noel and Noller's suits against the CDC, and they would report that they had made major procedural errors in these cases and often argued unsupported conspiracy theories that the court found unconvincing. In 1997, they represented another Pelican Bay guard. This time, the guard was accused of collaborating with the Aryan Brotherhood to beat and murder child molesters incarcerated at the Supermax prison. Prisoners were called as witnesses for the guard, who was ultimately found guilty. One of the witnesses Noelle and Noller had used in court was murdered in prison. Paul Schneider had also been called into court to testify, but he'd refused to speak while on the stand. Noel was impressed by Schneider's swagger and began visiting and corresponding with him. The truth is, Paul Schneider was grooming Noel and later Noller to carry out his bidding, much as he'd done numerous times in prison, including with Janet Coombs. Noel was a valuable asset in that the correspondence he sent to Schneider all came labeled confidential legal documents and so could not be opened by prison officials. They would be the next people he enlisted to continue his dog-breeding operation, and he would figure out what buttons to push to lure them in, hook, line, and sinker. Between March and December 2000, just over 100 letters were sent between Paul Schneider, Robert Noel, and Marjorie Noller. Just as he'd done with Janet Coombs, Schneider brought his attorneys into his world little by little, making them think they were an important part of his life. They may have been lured in because they were so deeply focused on taking on the CDC, relishing their perceived role as champions for powerless inmates. Marjorie Noller had always been an idealist, and had enlisted her husband in fighting for a noble cause. He, having worked for the government himself for much of his career, and becoming disillusioned with it, was a willing recruit. He wanted to play the hero role, and taking on the establishment was one way to do this. Schneider, being the puppet master he was, probably picked up on this in his initial dealings with Noel, and used it to his advantage. He would allow Noel to believe he was doing a noble work, and even began sharing his interest in heroic characters and symbols from mythology. He began sending drawings like he had to Janet Coombs, first drawing pictures of his dogs depicted as heroic and noble beasts. Later, he would draw Noel and Noller into these pictures, portraying them as a Norse god and goddess, flanked by Bane and Hera. Both Noel and Noller became completely enthralled in Schneider's fantasy world. Noel and his letters seemed to relish playing the role of a badass and enjoys his connection to Schneider, a hardcore convict and member of one of the most violent prison gangs in existence. Noel and Noller were already housing the female Hera in their small Pacific Heights apartment. Then in September 2000, Bain fell ill, and the people who were keeping him in Southern California weren't interested in paying for his medical treatment. Schneider enlisted Noel to retrieve Bain, and he brought the second dog home to live with them. Noel and Noller lavished the dogs with attention. They took them everywhere with them to, quote, get them used to city life. Remember, these were dogs who had never been socialized prior to arriving on the farm at Hayfork. Canine socialization, ideally, should occur between the first four to 12 weeks of a dog's life. Owners or handlers should expose them to humans and other friendly animals, providing a positive experience in a controlled environment so that they learn to coexist in a calm, trusting, and friendly manner with others. Then, once the dogs arrived at Coombs Farm, 
they had very little interaction with humans besides Janet and her daughter, and no interactions with other dogs. They treated the other animals on the farm as prey, killing several of them. Noelle and Nola read books about the breed, but didn't get any instruction on training or disciplining the large, powerful dogs. They didn't seek out an expert or take the dogs to behavior training classes. The advice they did receive, such as the opinion of the vet who assessed the dogs, they dismissed out of hand. Bain and Hera had little training on a leash, and living in the crowded city of San Francisco, they'd have to learn quickly. But it became clear almost immediately that the dogs were hard to handle. They would pull on their leashes to make a beeline for whatever caught their attention, a dog, another animal, or even a person, to lunge at them. The soft harnesses they wore did little to help Noel control the dogs. They have powerful chest muscles and strong legs, and it made it almost impossible for even the six-foot-four, almost 300-pound Noel to keep them from moving wherever they chose. Sometimes he'd have to straddle them and pull up on their harnesses to get them to stop. They rarely obeyed voice commands from their owners. Incredibly, Noel and Noller would sometimes allow the dogs to go off-leash, whether they were in the apartment building or the city streets or in parks. They continued to overestimate their control over Bain and Hera. Marjorie Noller would later say, Hera was an off-lead dog. She would respond to my commands, and I didn't have any problem with her. Of course, she may have been talking about before Bain came to join the family. Bain and Hera together came to rule the home and show an increase in aggressive behavior. But even before Bain came to live with them, Hera exhibited aggression towards others. In June of 2000, Noelle and Nola were waiting for the elevator in the lobby of their apartment building, and when the door opened, a resident, David Moser, was exiting. He would testify that the couple with their dog on a leash were crowding the door and didn't move back when the door opened, so he'd had to slip to the side of Marjorie Noller to make his exit. Just as he passed her, Hera bit him on the rear end. Startled, he jumped away. Your dog just bit me, he said to the couple who hadn't reacted at all. Noel, he said, just looked at him and said, hmm, interesting, as they boarded the elevator. Moser was in pain from the bite and went home to inspect it. There was a welt, which later became a bruise. He decided not to report it, since he was moving out of the building. Four days after Bain arrived, Noelle took both dogs to an off-leash dog park in nearby Chrissy Field. Hera was off-leash, while Noelle walked Bain on a lead. Noelle would later say that the other dog, a medium-to-large-sized dog, about 75 pounds, started the fight. In either case, Bain and the other dog began fighting, and Noel tried to control the dog by straddling him, but was brought down to the ground. In the melee, Noel's hand ended up between the dogs, and by the time the owners were able to separate them, Noel's right index finger had been bitten almost completely off. He at first said he didn't know which dog had done the biting, but later admitted that it had been Bain. He considered it an accident. He had to undergo surgery to reattach the finger and almost had to have it amputated. He was off work for a month, and while he was able to keep his finger, he was permanently disfigured. The incidents of the dogs menacing, attacking, and terrorizing others continued on a fairly consistent basis over the next few months. Each time, one or both owners were accompanying them. The dogs were also observed to be aggressive towards other dogs at a neighborhood park. Once Hera attacked a dog who was attempting to play with her, latching onto her snout. Noelle was unable to separate the dogs. Hera finally released her grip when another dog owner threw her keys at the dog, startling her. An eight-month pregnant woman, who was a resident of the building, was passing through the lobby while Noelle walked by with one of his dogs on a leash. She could not tell the dogs apart. The dog suddenly lunged toward her stomach, mouth open and teeth bared. She drew back, startled, as the dog's teeth snapped closed. Noel jerked the dog back, saying, Come on, as he led it away. He did not acknowledge the woman, nor apologize to her. Neil Bardick was walking his three-legged Sheltie Merrill in the neighborhood when he came upon Marjorie Noller walking one of her dogs. As the dog saw the 35-pound Sheltie, 
It lunged forward, pulling Noller to the ground. The bigger dog bit into Meryl's back as Bardic yelled at the woman to get control of her dog. She called to it, but he could see that she was unable to control the dog. Afraid his dog would be killed, he stood over the pressa and grabbed it by the head until it finally released the dog, who was able to get away. Noller appeared shaken and contrite, Bardic said. He took his dog in for treatment of a bite wound, and she recovered. A neighborhood dog walker said that whenever she encountered Bane and Hera, they would bark and lunge at her dogs. Still another dog walker, Ron Bogia, had one of his client's dogs attacked by Hera while she was off-leash in the park. He had spent several minutes with Noller, Noel, and Hera, talking and acquainting the dogs, before letting them off-leash to play. As soon as she was released off her leash, Hera turned on the standard poodle, grabbing it behind the ear and shaking it violently. Boja used his expert knowledge of dogs to apply pressure to her jaw muscles, which caused her to release. He reported that Noel was unable to get the dog to obey, and Noller just looked on, helpless. There were numerous incidents of the dogs barking and lunging at apartment residents as they encountered them exiting and entering the elevator with their owners. Diane Whipple became extremely nervous every time she waited for the elevator to arrive, not knowing if the aggressive dogs would be inside and ready to pounce. By December, Bane and Hera were so aggressive that neighbors began to describe them as berserk. Noelle's next-door neighbors had been complaining of the barking on the other side of the wall for months. They wrote letters to them, and they had agreed to work things out in a neighborly way. Then one day, as Skip and Andrea Cooley were waiting for the elevator, the door opened and one of the dogs jumped at them, teeth bared. Skip Cooley slammed the door quickly and Noelle apologized from inside the elevator and told the couple to retreat down to the far end of the hall. They did and watched Noelle wrestle the dogs all the way into his apartment. The whole time, Cooley said, the dog continued to fight him to try and get at the couple. Bane and Hera exhibited the same kind of behavior in the hallway of the sixth floor where they resided, in the building lobby, and even in front of the building. It was clear that the dogs considered these areas to be their domain, and anyone who breached them were treated as usurpers and enemies. On the streets, the dogs more often reacted aggressively to other dogs, but people also weren't off-limits. One day that fall, Noel was walking one of the dogs, and neighbor Mary Willard saw that he had a bandaged arm. Suddenly, the dog became excited and started running. Noel tried to hold on to the dog's leash, fell to his knees, and then was pulled to the ground and dragged across Fillmore Street before he was finally able to regain his footing and get control of the dog. This incident is proof of the strength of these dogs. One was able to drag a 300-pound man several yards without even breaking a sweat. Another man told of his encounter with the dogs while walking with his six-year-old son. As they passed, one of the dogs snarled and jumped towards the boy, coming within inches of his face. The man said that he believed the dog was definitely in attack mode. A postal worker said he heard dogs barking and turned to see both dogs coming at him at a very fast clip. He threw his mail cart in between him and the dogs, trying to keep them at bay. He continued to fight them off with his cart and said he felt, quote, terrified for his life until suddenly they just stopped and turned and walked away, back to their owners who were just standing up the block, watching the scene. Marjorie Noller was seen more frequently as Winter approached, walking both dogs by herself. Witnesses said she had no ability to control them, and they pulled her every which way. There are many more accounts of the dog's aggressive behavior, but I think you get the picture, so I won't detail them all. Just know that in December of 2000, and into the beginning of the new year, the stories are numerous. Neighbors were talking about the problem the dogs were creating in the building and the neighborhood, but no one reported it to the authorities or even the building manager. Those who had encounters on the street did not know the names of the owners or where they lived. They never apologized and simply walked away before the startled person could even recover enough to inquire. Those in the building either just tried to avoid the situation although that was becoming more difficult, or were wary about starting a fight with a neighbor. Others knew Noel and Noller by reputation. They were attorneys who, rather than trying to be good neighbors and keep their dogs away from others, acted arrogantly, dismissed their concerns, 
deflected blame away from themselves or their dogs, and were ready with a counterclaim against others. It wasn't worth the hassle, they thought. Meanwhile, Noel throughout was writing letters to Schneider, bragging about the fearsome dogs. He called Bane Bainster and referred to the dogs as the kids. Schneider, for his part, would forward pictures of his dogs to his sister Tammy. One included the caption, El Supremo Bane, born to raise hell. Schneider must have enjoyed the tales that Noel shared with him about how the dogs terrified neighbors. Noel laughed it off as ignorant people afraid of big dogs. One of Schneider's biggest complaints about Janet Coombs was that she was, quote, turning the dogs into sissies. He didn't like pictures she'd shared with him of the dog's more docile moments. Once, she sent a picture of Bane cuddling with a cat, and he hit the roof. You're making a wuss out of Bane, he wrote to her. These are royal dogs, and they need to look majestic. A few months later, he enlisted Noel to take possession of his royal dogs. In a letter dated January 11, 2001, Noel wrote to Schneider, describing Bane and Hera's behavior in the building. This morning's was an interesting walk. I'm getting used to the jailbreak approach the kids have. They break from the door like horses, out of the starting gate, stand next to the elevator, shifting from one leg to another. The elevator comes, hopefully with no one in it. Otherwise, they'll knock them down, rushing in. Later in the letter, he writes about an encounter with a neighbor. As soon as the elevator door opens at six, one of our newer female neighbors, a timorous little mousy blonde who weighs less than Hera, is met by the dynamic duo exiting and almost has a coronary. The little mousy blonde he referred to was Diane Whipple. That will conclude part one of the Pacific Heights dog mauling case. Part two will be released next week and will be our final chapter in the series, Wild Things. But if you don't want to wait a whole week for part two, you can hear it early. It will be released this coming Wednesday on Patreon. To become a patron to access it and other bonus content, go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. Just a $2 pledge a month will get you early release episodes, bonus content, and more. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. Thank you.